You're listening to Framework, where we dig into the research, planning, and building that goes into bringing products to market. I'm Rob Hayes. And I'm Tom Creighton. And today we're talking with Lindsay Canton, who, among other things, is the Director of Product Design at Bridge School. For those of you who don't know, Bridge School is a program dedicated to skill building for women, agender, and non-binary folks with programs in software development and product design that are free to students. We'll link to it in the show notes if you're interested in learning more. Lindsay, how about a short intro to yourself and your history as a product creator? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for having me, Tom and Rob. This is really exciting. Um, so yeah, by day, I'm a product designer at Wrangell here in Toronto. And by night, I'm the director of product design at Bridge. My journey to design was kind of interesting. Um, many moons ago, I went to art school. I studied printmaking and painting, but I realized I like creature comforts too much. So I pivoted to graphic design. <laughs> um, and I did that for several years. And then I decided I wanted to build websites. I wanted to get into something more dynamic and exciting. So. At the time, I thought the best way into the tech space was like a front-end development bootcamp, so I did that. And afterward, I got a, a job at Wrangle as a product designer, and I learned a lot on the job. So I've been a consultant there now for a few years, and it's with other Wranglers that I collaborated on creating uh, Bridges product design program. Nice. What was the what was the big problem that you were aiming to solve when you started thinking about what ultimately become Bridge School? Yeah, um, so we knew marginalized folks have a burden to bear, and that can manifest overtly with events like not getting a promotion, or it can be something um, every day like microaggressions. Um, but they shouldn't have to pay like many thousands of dollars to level up. Um, they're already making less money on average, so it's kind of like charging them twice. Um, do you know what I mean? Like if it's <laughs> they're yeah. making less at their job and then they're paying thousands of dollars to go to this course. So, you know, essentially we wanted to transfer the burden of being marginalized from individuals to institutions. Um, it's kind of the opposite of lean in. And it's it's really that simple. So, you know, we're asking companies as in institutions to sort of pay a little bit there. And then also folks who have some privilege and some seniority in the industry to volunteer their time. We can also talk about hiring as a core problem as well. We wanted to be able to hire more women, so we offered to train people up for free. So you were you were identifying uh, an educational need that was really underserved. Was this something that, that seemed like a unique opportunity, or do you think there was a larger trend towards uh, education that, that you wanted to help with or, or boost uh, in Toronto or, or more generally? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of like where do people go to scale up between boot camps and leadership? There's like this like soupy middle, and uh, and I didn't think there was really <laughs> uh, any place for people to go there. So we wanted to create a space for folks who are already working, who are in the industry, who are facing challenges getting that like next opportunity or that next promotion. There are conferences. There's like coaching and mentorship programs. You can scale up in like specific areas, taking specific courses in like you know very highly specialized specified areas, but I think there's like a more holistic approach to teaching the strategic side to product design that would help people get to that next step. So you touch on some of the existing solutions that, that are out there for people, whether it's uh, internal training or uh, some of the boot camp courses that, that do exist. Were those, did you feel like those were doing a good enough job or, or is that just really kind of the tip of the iceberg for, for solving this problem? I think boot camps are doing a good job certainly some <laughs> better than others. The free aspect of bridge is important, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, maybe someone who was only able to really do like dubious free online courses can now have access to like a higher quality, accelerated, advanced education that actually features like a community and a support network. The accessibility of the content was really the, was one of the major problems to be solved. 
Absolutely. Were you looking at other, you know, we've been talking about boot camps, but other uh, companies trying to tackle this problem uh, before figuring out what form Bridge was going to take? Or, I mean, are other companies trying to tackle this problem? I don't think there's anybody doing exactly what we're doing. But I did speak with a lot of design leaders to validate the problem and ask what they've been doing. So um, this wasn't necessarily at the beginning, but in the last few months, I met with Derek Vaz, uh, who is one of the people who brought Huge to Toronto. And he was involved with Huge School as well, which is kind of an accelerated apprenticeship program. So a little bit different than what we're doing, but but similar in terms of the content. And so I think that's a pretty cool solution. I'm not sure if they're still running that. I'm also met with, I don't know if you know, Ella Gorev of Newology. And mm-hmm. she was running that interesting sort of apprenticeship program as well for a time. And yeah, other design leaders here and there to talk about the challenges they faced hiring designers in general. So not necessarily in the education space, but like sort of figuring out what people's challenges were in hiring more women and uh, other marginalized folks. At what, at what point were you convinced that this was a problem that, that you needed to solve? What, what was the kind of tipping point for you that made oh. you... <laughs> decide to, to commit your time and energy towards this? Oh my God. Yeah. It's totally, when I started speaking with women who were interested in taking the course, like they, we did like a bunch of user research with um, about 20 women, six in person. And I think the in-person interviews are always so much richer, but yeah, I mean, these women spoke about like <laughs> the same problems, you know, a lot of like struggle to communicate surrounding design, confidence to kind of like own the room, um, own the situation, stuff like that. Like people really spoke about like a need for a course that was like a safe environment or like, you know, learning in a safe environment and leveling up with other women. I think, yeah, that was that was what convinced me to really (laughs) dig in. Having having identified that need, and I think it sounds like identifying it, you know, very strongly, and, and having a lot of people excited about it. How did you explore the different ways that you could actually address this problem? How did you find out how people actually wanted to to learn or to be taught? Yeah, so um, I guess there's two parts. We held a kickoff at Wrangle with a bunch of designers with the intention to sort of diverge, come up with like a lot of ideas and map it out on whiteboards and stickies and all that good stuff. So yeah, we thought about who we could best serve, what we could teach, what level we would teach. So, you know, there was some interest in potentially teaching newcomers to tech, people who had no experience in design at all, because, you know, I'm going to say like a 101 course is a little bit easier uh, in some ways because everyone's kind of coming in at the same level. Whereas like when you're doing a more advanced course, you're getting people from all over with different levels. There's other juniors looking to level up. That was another option. And I think that's more or less what we went with. And we concluded that we didn't really understand the problem well enough in those sessions. So we needed to do a little bit more user research. And that's when I did those interviews with women that I spoke about earlier, where, yeah, we we spoke to them about their pain points. So we asked specific questions like, what are your career pain points? What are your learning pain points? What are your barriers? Uh, What's your education background and your career background? And based on that information, we we kind of returned to those like (laughs) kickoff sessions with other designers and we converged on like some specific solutions based on that research. How did you identify people to speak to for that for that user research? Where where did you go about looking for people and, and how did you how did you get them on board to chat with? Yeah, it was not hard. Um, (laughs) I pretty much mentioned like, we're thinking of offering this free course to learn uh, product design. And uh, if you'd be interested in participating in some user research. Oh, and it was on Slack mostly, I think maybe on Twitter. So I mean, like Slack groups like DesignX, there was like UXTO. 
what else? Yeah, just various slack groups in Toronto, mostly. Nice. And so how did you go about, or, or did you go about prototyping this solution at all? Like kind of taking baby steps towards building up uh, what the, the course offering that we see today? Yeah, I guess there's sort of two steps. Um, we made early course outlines with outcomes. So like for every section, not necessarily every class, but every sort of like module, we had like a course outline with specific outcomes for students. So for example, we want students to be able to be comfortable uh, doing an empathy map without having to refer to a piece of paper. We also validated that with design leaders. So I think I spoke with Jeremy Bailey of FreshBooks, a few senior talent folks like Nora Jenkins Townsend and Karen from Intelaware. So yeah, that was the first part where you're prototyping out like <laughs> the outline of the course. And then I suppose you could count our beta um, cohort as a prototype because we continued to like get validation and feedback at every step of the way. And iterated a lot in the middle of the course. <laughs> so I, we've been talking a lot about validating with students. How much validation did you do on the on the teacher side? Yeah, so with instructors and TAs, we held like sessions to validate. So we put everything up on a board. Um, I told them to poke holes in it. I, I try and be very like <laughs> humble about this and making sure people are giving us honest feedback, both with teachers and students. We rearranged some things in the course. So I think there was like some interest in um, changing up the way that user research where that was. And then took some things out of scope for the beta. So for the for the beta course, it was a seven-week program. So if you're doing an end-to-end -end project in seven weeks, that's pretty intense. So we needed to take some things out that were, you know, initially important to us, but we, we realized we needed to make it sustainable for students and teachers. Would you say you took basically the same kind of approach with, with you know, both sides of the equation here, both students and teachers? In, in You just kind of tried it and, and prototyped it and see how it, uh, and, and saw how it went? Yeah, absolutely. Are there any barriers when you're working with something something such as a, a, a skills development school it could potentially affect somebody's career? Are there any barriers that you ran into for students in in their decision about how about whether they take this course or not? Like, I imagine I imagine this is a larger decision to kind of jump into something like this. Uh, it's a large time commitment, not not a financial commitment, thankfully, but uh, <laughs> it would have a significant impact on their day to day life, and you know potentially their career. You nailed it. Time is the biggest thing I think that would be a barrier. Um, it's possible you can't balance like both an intensive course in your career and who knows whatever else stuff you have going on at home or your personal life. Yeah, in the beta class, we had somebody who um, we, we offered a spot to, but um, she unfortunately couldn't do it because she had prior commitments. I think the beta one, we had offered it to students like with about a month notice, so totally understandable. Um, this one, we gave them a bit more notice um, and thankfully everybody we accepted also accepted. <laughs> Yeah, I think time is the biggest one. Do you think there's uh, specific challenges in in trying to prototype out or validate an educational product that you wouldn't have uh, with you know your your sort of traditional product design project? Just I guess the the human aspect of it and and that time ask is probably a as you identified a huge hurdle. Were there were there any other um, you know, particular problems that you had to deal with that you might not in, in you know, the kind of day-to-day -day work that, that you were doing? I mean, no, I think you, you nailed it again. Um, the product has like a bigger time dimension, if that makes sense. So it's mm -hmm. like the different, it's the difference between validating like a three minute song, song being like a web product and like a three hour play. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's sort of slower and it's, it necessitates more like lean iterations. And I guess 
the opposite to that is like the human factor. So this isn't like a chill thing for people who want to chill. It's a, it's a huge mm -hmm. time commitment for students and volunteers. So messing it up has like big human consequences. We, we tried to get it a little bit like more right the first time than a typical beta, even though it was like our, our first uh, design program. You, you talk about the length of, of delivery for your for the service here. Does that mean that you are kind of iterating on things mid delivery through the through the beta program? Or did you did you run through it full through the, the program as it was designed fully before making tweaks and changes to it? Oh, yeah, we were iterating the whole way. Um, there's a few examples there. So the first one being in our project discovery uh, section, I think that took a whole extra day. It's just like, people have to practice this thing. So it took a lot longer and it was pretty complex. So we ended up shifting all of the classes like back one day, taking out some things. Another thing we did was at the end of every single class, we took like five minutes while people were packing up to ask like what went well, what didn't go well, what would you like to see next time? And that surfaced really interesting stuff. So for example, some people, some students wanted more challenges. They wanted, they wanted more like learning and reading, more feedback. So we were able to sort of provide that just in time for them. And then some students, you know, I think they felt a little bit like the coursework was more than enough. <laughs> um, and so like in that way, we kind of pulled back from some things as well. Okay. So you've talked about, you've talked about how you've kind of discovered the problem here and you've went about validating this with both the student side of the, of the equation and the, the teacher or instructor side of it. Once you had that confidence that not only the content was was kind of on point here and the need was there. What were the next steps to actually rolling this out? How did you go about building out the, the work back for, for, for launching a, a, a whole education program? The first step we took was sort of committing to a time and date for the course. So everyone in the design team is really busy, really committed to their work at Wrangle. And at the end, it's like never really convenient to have a big side project. So we ended up sort of picking a date arbitrarily to work toward and then doing the work that we needed to do on weekends and the evenings. I think in the case of the beta, it was we wanted to fit in this course before the winter holidays. Like we didn't want it to affect like Hanukkah or Christmas or whatever that might be for people. So yeah, I mean, we just kind of picked a day and I made sure, you know, that everybody was supported and it wasn't like <laughs> this awful thing. But yeah, we just kind of, I think the group decided that we needed to pick a day and work towards it. So having done that, how did you gather support to, to actually like execute this, not just in a beta phase, but in, in quote unquote real life? Did you have to find a, you know, a champion within uh, Wrangle or, or any of the other organizations that, that were supporting uh, Bridge? Yeah. Um, so I guess for, I can speak about the product design program first. So I think mm -hmm. I spoke like on a whim to my old boss, uh, Mike Costanzo. He was the head of design at Wrangle. I think I just randomly saw him walk by and I grabbed him for like two minutes. And I was like, what do you think if we did a bridge class, but for design? Um, and I think, you know, with, with anything, when we talk about women in design, it's not as obvious as an issue as maybe women in software development. So I think it took some convincing for some folks um, mm -hmm. in leadership there, but everyone was really supportive once we sort of um, actually aligned on that it was an issue. So that that's kind of like from the executive side, obviously Emily Porta, our executive director of Bridge, she helped a lot gaining executive support there. She also has done amazing work uh, in the community. So Tulip 
uh, is running a bridge cohort for software developers coming up in June. And Emily was absolutely instrumental in sort of getting support there. ZJ Hadley at Tulip as well um, was with us from the start. So that was great. And then, yeah, in terms of like actually getting volunteers, teachers, instructors, stuff like that, I think I started posting about it on like our Wrangle design team channel to gauge interest. I held a few meetings. I poked like a few key people I thought could be instructors. And almost all of these people continued to be involved at a really high level. The next step after sort of gaining that support was like validating with students. So that's when that user research came in. So you touched on that you had to you had to do a bit more convincing that this was a problem in the design side of the equation. How do you how do you make the case for that? What's the <laughs> What, what, what goes into to kind of proving out the problem here? Yeah, so I guess when the question of like why women in design comes up, we looked at stats back then to see if a program like this was needed. And the stats were saying like, so I mean, I guess I, I actually did like a deck <laughs> with some stats and some illustrations. I stole a lot of stuff from the Envision report from 2016 that talks a lot about this. It's called product design industry report. Anyway, so there's some stats in there that women are paid less than men on average. I think that's across the board, all, most industries. Um, women are often like given less opportunities. They're less likely to be promoted into leadership roles. And the funky one that I think is particular to design is like as design roles become more technical. So like as they intersect with like tech more, and I think that's the case for product design, UX or computational designers, women's attrition rates are greater. So you might come into it, but you you might not stay because you just can't find a place for yourself there. Anyways, there's lots of factors there, but sort of proving that out with like actual data, I think was really key. Yeah. So given those stats, we felt like a program that help women gain more skills and confidence like would be beneficial. So having sold this into the organization, what was the what was sort of the next step to find support and involvement from from the larger tech and design community here in Toronto? A lot of social media or social media did a lot of that work for us. Not that we had like some gigantic plan. It was just like me and a password. We made sure to like post a lot of photos of what was happening because I think what we're doing is a little bit different and it takes a minute to explain as you heard earlier. <laughs> so I think like showing photos like that makes it really tangible, makes it like feel really real and people can like understand what's happening. So social media was huge. And I think like Slack groups was also good on the ground. You know, there's a community builders group in Toronto that's run by some amazing people. So that was really instrumental sort of getting our word out, networking, definitely networking here and there. Yeah, and just general community building efforts for sure. Now that the we're, we're at the point in the conversation where the course is the course is set, you've got bought in from other instructors, volunteers, how do you begin to chunk out the work to be done amongst the team members? Because it sounds like for an operation like this, there is operations work, course development work, teaching, marketing, things like that. So how do you divvy up ownership for all of that work? Yeah, I'll admit that in the beta, we didn't do as great of a job at sort of chunking it out. And I didn't do a great job of delegating <laughs> to my detriment. Um, but I think we've learned a lot from there. And um, yeah, back then it was a lot of just-in-time stuff. But I'd say like operations was mostly handled by myself for the design cohorts and by a few others for the development cohorts, namely like Emily Porta, Pervy Canal, and Abdella Ali, who are our other executives. Student acquisition for the beta, we worked with the talent team. We literally just invited six participants from the user research group. And then for the latest 
group of students for the design cohort, we actually did like a call. It was like a whole formal process. They apply through our um, CMS, our HR CMS at Wrangell, but it's through Bridge. Yeah, it was like a whole process. They did design challenges. And um, yeah, I mean, I think I did a, a much better job at delegating this time around. I have uh, a content team. I have now like a sort of like an, I guess, application evaluation team. I have instructors who are separate from TAs. I have a new lead TA. I'm so excited about that. She's like going to own like the student experience a little bit more so that I can step back and run things a little bit more organizationally and worry about operations. Yeah, it's definitely working on delegating more things to make it sustainable, not just for me, but really for everyone. It sounds like the V1 was was pretty scrappy and, and mm-hmm. pretty hands-on. How, how has that evolved as you've, you know, run, run more cohorts and, and gained some more experience? The first cohort was like seven weeks. So we we had our skeleton content, like that was like the structure we wanted. So for this next course, it's 11 weeks, which is not double, but it, it feels like it. And we pretty much just like built out what we wanted, what we felt like was missing last time. And so that feels a lot better. We have that kind of content in place and it's just like iterating, making it a little bit better. Yeah, that was like a, that's a major thing for sure. Were there any major barriers that you ran into when running through this, uh, when running through your beta program, things that you didn't necessarily think of going into it that that were really almost showstoppers in, in making this program run successfully? The big one was time for sure. <laughs> I think we we did a great job of like working over lunch and trying to make it sustainable, um, working a little bit after hours, but then making sure people went home. I think that. So there's time as in like people were short on time, but um, I think also getting enough volunteers, like naturally there's this interesting thing where there's a lot of software developers uh, and there's less designers, right? So Mm -hmm. where maybe the software development cohort has a lot more volunteers just because of like just numbers. Um, And it doesn't matter that we're a wrangle. It's really any company has less designers than software developers, generally speaking. So yeah, I think finding, finding, enough designers who had the time (laughs) and like finding that balance where I'm not like putting too much of a burden on them. I think this time around, we have a much bigger community. We have like six TAs, four instructors, um, a lead TA, head of marketing. It's yeah, it's, it's a lot better now. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Are you continuing to discover those kind of uh, gaps in, in the offering or, or is it kind of uh, smooth sailing at this point? Mm, absolutely. We're still dis- discovering the gaps. We kind of, we know some of the gaps and we we have this amazing problem where now we have almost too many volunteers. People just like show up in our inbox, in our DM saying, I want to help. I want to volunteer. How can I get involved? And now we have this like embarrassing problem where we're like, we don't even know what to do with you. <laughs> can you give us some suggestions? Because like, yeah, we we've we have a lot of amazing people who want to help and yeah, I think there's definitely room for them. It's just like, where, where Mm -hmm. do you strategically put them so that they're learning and they're also like, you know, getting something from it. And uh, yeah. You spoke about when you, when you release the first version or how you release the first cohort to the world, is there a more calculated uh, process to launching new cohorts moving forward? How do you manage those releases to to ensure the biggest splash and, and, and ensure you get uh, you reach new audiences with your offering? The first one was just we sent emails to the user research participants. Um, I think for the most part, it's been reaching out through social media. Um, we actually, we have a volunteer now who's going to be 
sort of whose job it will be to research places where we can do outreach to get like, like you say, like new audiences, new people to serve. Yeah. So I think that's going to be really key in continuing to like serve the right community. And yeah, I think that's, that's really exciting to me because we have a lot of, we have a lot of applicants. We just want to make sure we're also serving, serving the right people because it is a free course. When you were actually releasing this and, and getting it out there, how did you, how did you track this? How did you, you know, collect metrics or, or set milestones for the beta and then for the, you know, sort of the, the, the official launch? So we continued to sort of evaluate as we went through the beta. We did kind of have a halfway point retrospective with instructors and volunteers and TAs to sort of see where they felt we could improve. Uh, But like, you know, very lean, very agile. We didn't really have milestones per se, just sort of check-in points. And as I mentioned, we were kind of always iterating. But yeah, more or less like the major course sections ran on time for us. Our project discovery classes, as I mentioned, ran an extra day and we had to change a few things to like accommodate this, but we learned from that. And I think this time we've set aside a little bit more time to cover that. And um, yeah. Do you have a, a, a metric for success for this program? Is there is there a particular measurement that you're tracking that tells you whether this is, this is uh, the product's doing well or not? We definitely have a lot of qualitative, um, maybe a little bit less quantitative stuff, but for qualitative measures, like we do interviews with former students from each stream on our blog to see kind of what value they got out of that. So it's kind of a content generation, but it's also just like to see what's most valuable for them. Um, We also got like really great testimonials from instructors and TAs who got value or like see students get value. Um, We continue to gather data on like hiring and promotions and in future some more quantitative things like salary of grads. We have somebody who's been sort of working on this for the the last few months and uh, I think we're going to be putting some more surveys together. There's also our new student experience lead who is going to be doing some um, I don't know if you guys have heard of ServeQual. I'm not sure if I've even pr- like pronouncing that right, but um, <laughs> it's essentially this multidimensional research instrument, and it's designed to capture like consumer expectations and perceptions of a service um, along a few dimensions. Anyway, so um, we're going to be implementing some surveys before the course, like before people have even touched it, in the middle of it, and at the end to sort of understand what where the gaps are and um, measure that way. Um, but it's interesting because it's sort of hard to measure because there's just this time aspect that I keep talking about. It's, it's sort of like long-term and people getting better jobs, better salaries. It, it takes time. Um, and often we're measuring alumni. So they have to mm-hmm. sort of opt into participating after they've sort of not, not left the community. They're still in the community, but they've left the course. So there's less touch there, like less high touch. Yeah. So it's a little bit more difficult to capture numbers. So like, for example, with Canada Learning Code, they host a lot of one or two day workshops among other amazing programs. Um, but we're running long cohorts. So the data set is a little bit smaller, I think. So you talked about the qualitative data gathering and, and whether students are getting value from this. What types of value, like how does value get defined by some of the students? I think if you set expectations for what people are interested in before the course and We do that in a few different ways, depending on the program. You know, we kind of check in midway. We check in towards the end to see if they're getting what they expected and what they wanted. So that's a big part of how we would collect that qualitative. The other thing is, like, 
as I think I mentioned before, we do like the sort of some usability testing at the end of every single class that's like um, what worked well, what didn't work well, what could we do better? And we can take that data like, you know, day by day, it's one thing, but when you collect it all um, over this course of multiple courses, <laughs> um, that's that's really good qualitative data as well. On, on the flip side of that, how do you show the value of, of Bridge to, you know, potential to, to companies who would potentially hire the, the graduates coming out of it? We show them what skills they're coming out of the course with. And, you know, that kind of makes them hireable, right? So if you're learning mm-hmm. really high level React and functional um, programming, that's that's huge. So, yeah, and I think I mentioned before, we have testimonials from instructors and TAs who like, would see the students grow and see what they can do. So that's, yeah, that's that's kind of something how, how we show value. The other thing, showing value, you know, there's so there's like the hiring portion and then there's kind of like this social responsibility value. And that comes through things like, like photos and blogs and, you know, students sharing how much they've learned and enjoyed and got value out of the course just from their own words. How many cohorts have, have gone through, including the beta now? Is this three? Uh, for design, we did the beta cohort, and we have our, I guess, cohort one coming up on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the development cohort, I believe we have run four, and four. we'll be running another one with Tulip shortly. Awesome. So, where where do you go from here? How does the how does the program? It seems like it seems like the program is a success. It's growing. What are the next steps for for Bridge School? So long term, it could be, you know, different programs. We've been thinking about getting into an iOS development uh, program, um, teaching Vue instead of React on the dev side. Uh, for design, it's only our second cohort, so we're trying to focus on operationalizing a little bit more. Um, but there's so many exciting things we could build out with design. Like it would be really amazing to do a visual design bridge, user research, really diving deep on that one as well. But yeah, I think short term, we're thinking deepening the cur- the existing programs. And I think long term, we, we don't know. We're, <laughs> we're, we try and keep things agile. We, we haven't planned too much longer than nine or nine months or a year in the future. Obviously, we, we do have some business model <laughs> planning. But, uh, but in terms of our course offerings, because everything has to be so relevant to the market it's it's uh, has mm-hmm. to be sort of evaluated taking a step back for a minute we've we've been talking about demonstrating value but you know what what was the kill switch in this project like what if it it, it didn't work out how would how would you have handled that yeah I, I don't know if we have a specific kill switch other than like is this sustainable for our community members? Are people getting value? Uh, which is not a kill switch because you're evaluating afterwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, but I think also there is some, there's some uh, focus on making sure we are continuing to deliver like quality courses because I think that's that's a huge thing that we're we're really obsessed with, making sure that this is really like a quality education, and so. If we have to start sacrificing quality for doing more cohorts to make it sustainable in terms of like, um, you know, financial stuff, then Mm -hmm. that's not going to work. Yeah, we don't want to become just another program. We want to be like (laughs) one of the best. Um, And if that ceases to happen, then I don't think 
it's worth spending our volunteer hours on it. Thinking about how how you deliver this type of uh, this type of service moving forward, are there different models that you could employ uh, beyond just in-class education? Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited about what we're going to be up to in the next year. I think, yeah, we're we're looking at potentially doing some exploration with, you know, hiring models, uh, maybe some independent cohorts. So things that might, um, like where we actually have our own independent volunteers and we run it independently in a space. So it's not necessarily associated with the company. That's a really exciting model to me. And I think, yeah, the success of this rests on our course material staying relevant. So we're constantly evolving content and making sure it's like relevant in the market. Um, so with that, that means like, we, we might be changing things uh, <laughs> depending on what's needed in the market. So, you know, I mentioned before iOS development, um, maybe Vue, maybe a different design cohort. And another thing we're building out is sort of like more events and more workshops so that we're not just serving people in the longer term courses, but rather like a you know, a weekend of leveling up on JavaScript. So it would be maybe the same people we might admit into a course, but it's that advanced material that is, I think, less, like there's less offerings for that out in the world. So speaking of, of market relevancy, uh, you've gone from from offering dev to dev and design courses. And, and you mentioned like iOS uh, development. Do you think that the, you know, part of that evolving model for Bridge is to, go deeper into sort of specific practices so not just you know development but development for a specific platform or or actually open it out to add other disciplines something like you know ux research for for instance we've thought a lot about this um i mean we kind of jokingly say like bridge for scrum masters bridge for bqas or <laughs> um, bridge for user research yeah i mean there's a lot of interest we've had people in the community reach out to us and reach out to us and ask if we'd be interested in um, building out different course offerings. Yeah, I think it's very interesting to me. And I think that definitely we will get another stream down the road. Uh, but for now, we're definitely focusing on making making our cohorts very operationalized so that we can run them better. And uh, there's sort mm -hmm. of less like like <laughs> castles living in our heads like yeah we're trying to very much document everything at the moment <laughs> we, off the top we talked about the different different types of schools that uh, schools and programs that were in the markets that were offering um, education around these skills do you guys look at this at, at them as competitors or is this uh, is it a rising tides raises all boats type of opportunity mm -hmm. in the skills development space? Yeah, I think at the moment, it's definitely rising tides. Um, I don't see really any competitors at the moment. Um, you know, I think we consider people like HackerU as like, not exactly a partner, but like people who were like working in the same space with, but serving a different part of the market. And yeah, I think so far we have like really friendly relationships with everyone. What APM is up to is amazing. It's really exciting to see uh, a different iteration of sort of, sort of similar to Bridge a little bit. And I think someone, I should probably shouldn't say this, but somebody <laughs> said something about um, Bridge being an inspiration a little bit for building out APM. And that really warmed my heart because they're, they're really senior folks doing really cool stuff. So yeah, I, I don't really see, and I'm not just trying to be like warm and fuzzy here. Like I honestly don't see <laughs> really any major competitors uh, at the moment. Yeah. Offering what we're doing. So just kind of uh, rounding this out, I think it's it's fair to say you approach this in a very sort of traditional 
design project kind of way in terms of, of you know validation and, and learning and iteration. What do you think is is the big uh, product learning from from building out Bridge School? I guess I imagined that this thing would be a little bit more static from the get-go. Like I thought coming in, we would be able to plan out a course and execute it. And I don't know why I had this waterfall mentality <laughs> for a course just because it was a course. Um, but it's not. I mean, I guess the big product learning is that like, okay, maybe I'll back up. I feel like when I started building this course, I was thinking a little bit more in terms of project management, old school mm -hmm. stuff I had done in my previous career as a graphic designer and general designer. And my boss, Mike Costanzo at the time was like, no, uh, build this like you would build any kind of other Wrangle product. You need to do the research, get the mm -hmm. data, validate all of the stuff. And I was like, a, it was like a switch turned in my head. Like, of course you can really apply this <laughs> to anything. And I think the value of that was like, I was too close to the program at the time and he was seeing it from a different angle. So that was really great. Yeah, I think like we learned that we can build this very different thing using the same thing as we would uh, <laughs> a product for, for web. So a big thanks to Lindsay for joining us today and a thank you for listening. If you're interested in learning more, you can find out all the information you need at bridgeschool.io. If you enjoyed this episode of Framework, it helps a lot if you leave a review or rating on iTunes or recommend this podcast to a friend. And if you'd like to hear someone else's product story on Framework or tell your own, we'd love to hear from you. And our contact details are on the website. See you next time.